When a cyber attack occurs, how do we identify who committed it? There is no straightforward answer to that question. Even if we know Chinese hackers have infiltrated our power grid with logic bombs, we might not be able to say with certainty whether those hackers were state actors or rogue Chinese hackers looking for an offensive asset that they can sell to their government. Even if we know someone in Russia launched an attack on the banking system in Ukraine, we might not know whether that attack came from the government of Russia or from aggressive non-governmental forces that are aligning themselves with the government. Accurate cyber attack attribution is key to preventing diplomatic mistakes in the modern battleground of the internet. Today's guest, John Davis, is one of the authors of the report called Stateless Attribution Towards International Accountability in Cyberspace. John is a senior information scientist with RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. This report was commissioned by Microsoft, and it provides a deep assessment of our current ability to attribute a cyber attack to the perpetrator of that attack. We're trying out something new with the Software Engineering Daily Question of the Week. This week we want to know, what is the best continuous delivery or continuous integration tool, open source tool, or platform, some software as a service, that you use. We want to know what is the best continuous delivery tool and why you're using it. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're going to evaluate the answers and we will select a random person who emails us and award that person with a free Software Engineering Daily hoodie sweatshirt that we will send you. And then we will compile those answers. We'll get you a write-up in a month or so with the feedback for what is the best tool. So send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We would love to hear what you think about continuous integration and continuous delivery tools. John Davis is a senior information scientist with RAND Corporation. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to talk to you. I reached out because... You have written about attribution, and attack attribution is a topic that I have been following for several years. I haven't gone deep on it, but I'm hoping we can do that in this episode. And I think this is a topic that's only going to increase in importance. For people who are unfamiliar with the term attribution, what does that mean? Well, really, when you talk about cyber attribution, the whole goal is to determine who is a responsible party associated with a given cyber attack? And you can think about that in a couple of ways. First of all, you can identify the computer system through which an attack occurred. You can also ideally try to also identify the persons that engaged with the computer systems and networks to facilitate the attack. And then the third type of attribution really looks at who are the parties that may have not necessarily touched the computer keyboards, but certainly were responsible and perhaps provided the funding and resources necessary to facilitate the attack. And this, this would be this third category is where states may come into play. Mm-hmm. When a physical attack occurs, if I punch somebody, that is a pretty easy conflict to understand attribution. I am responsible for the punch. 
the victim is the person who I have punched. Why is it so much more complicated in cyber attacks? Well, you know, fundamentally, you're dealing with a, a complex topic. When you think about the technology that sits behind the Internet, the vast majority of people are not familiar with that who are not technologists. So just talking about the kinds of communications that goes on underlying the inter Internet is a complex topic. The Internet, by its very design, has a very dynamic design to it. Or I should say the Internet was designed in a very dynamic way so that there is not a single point of failure. It has a very distributed nature The very addresses the IP addressing scheme is constantly changing. So what might be the case or what the network that you would be dealing with during the course of an attack versus the network that you'd be dealing with days, weeks, months later may be very different. And then the other issue is that you just don't have this physical evidence that everyone can see when you're dealing with cybersecurity. It's just does not have the display that would occur in a kinetic attack. And so for those kinds of reasons, it's a very much difficult process to, to engage in. Mm. Now, that's not to say that there are not techniques that have become more commonly used that make it a lot easier to identify who the uh, source of an attack or the responsible party associated with an attack is. But it still does have a nature that is, uh, you know, there, there are no guarantees when you compare it to other types of attacks. Who is responsible for attributing an attack to the attacker? Is it a government? Is it the corporations that may be the victims of an attack? Well, I mean, there certainly is no law that is set up to require a particular party be responsible for engaging in this attribution activity. Often, the victim it has the strongest incentive to determine who the attacker is. And in some cases, the victim will use their own resources if they do have such capabilities. In other cases, the victim will hire third-party firms to provide security services and various attribution services to act on their behalf. So in that former case, certainly when you look at countries like the United States that have tremendous capability to engage in cyber attribution, leveraging their intelligence community, then they're able to perform some of this investigation on their own. There are other countries that do have equivalent skill sets, but there are a whole lot of countries that don't have this skill set. There's been evidence that China does not have strong skills in performing attribution, even though they engage in, you know, there certainly has been quite a bit of evidence of the attacks that they have perpetrated. Mm. If you think about the this other category of victim, often victims who are perhaps commercial entities, commercial firms, they will set up an arrangement with a private cybersecurity firm, and that will lead to an investigation. And then that firm will operate however that firm does decide to operate. Now, one of the things that's common, though, various firms such as, you know, your, your CrowdStrike, your FireEyes, they do often share information and kind of have some degree of sharing of practices amongst them. 
But at the end of the day, there's no overarching policy for how any of these investigative entities should operate. So you mentioned that China may not be great at attribution. It's not hard to imagine a scenario where that's actually quite problematic because especially because you said they they have they do have some offensive intent or off, maybe they have they've gone through offensive actions. You know, you can imagine a scenario where China engages in an offensive scenario and then China has an attack that goes uh, let's say China engages in an offensive scenario towards the United States and then China is the victim of an attack. If China is not great at the actual act of attribution, there could be a third party that pretends to be the United States and attacks China and makes it look like it was the United States. And this creates a a situation where there is mass confusion. How realistic is that type of scenario I've laid out? Is this something that I should be concerned about? That's a very real scenario, not necessarily having occurred with China per se, but that kind of scenario where we have these false flags has occurred in the past. And we do have this concern that the perpetrator might intentionally leave tracks which would suggest that the attacker is a different entity and that can throw the investigators off the trail, particularly if those investigators do not have a a strong attribution skill set. So, for example, TV5 Monde, a media outlet in France, the attacker engaged in false flag activities to suggest that it was ISIS who engaged in the attack, when in fact it turned out not to be ISIS, and much of the evidence points at APT-28, which is associated with Russia. So that's certainly a possibility, and to the extent that some of the parties involved do not have solid skills in being able to do this investigation, Therein lies an opportunity to have a gold standard investigation, which might facilitate avoiding finger pointing in the wrong direction. What are some of the technical methods that cyber attackers use to misdirect the people who are trying to track them down and perform correct attribution? You can kind of group the evidence into three categories. You have the technical evidence. You have the evidence that is generally associated with the intelligence community. And then you have evidence or really motivations that often tend to be tied to politics. If we think about this technical evidence, a lot of this is the various files types of vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities, malware, various other, you know, file types that you'll find in the attack system, the use of computers with particular addresses, things of this sort. And in some cases, the characteristics of this evidence can be used as a way to indicate a particular type of of, of attacker. So often the infrastructure that is used in these attacks is fairly complex. I mean, there's a range of complexity, let's be clear. So there are some cases where there's a kind of low-hanging fruit attacks, but there are, are some attacks that require fairly complex technology, the use of you know various types of vulnerabilities. And the entity that uses or, or first develops and then uses that technology when they want to set up a subsequent attack against a different entity, a, a different victim, 
it's often the case that they'll want to reuse that same infrastructure because it's pretty heavy lift to put all this infrastructure in play. Mm. So what can happen is over time, you'll see these patterns where the same kind of evidence is showing up. So, you know, a particular entity will frequently use a particular type of vulnerability or they'll always exploit, you know, PowerShell or in fact, what's common in the industry is to consider malware families. So you have these various names of malware that are used across several attack incidents. And a given malware family will indicate a certain type of characteristic associated with the the attack. So that's one of the ways that you can find evidence from a technical standpoint. And I remember reading... I think this is a book by Eric Schmidt and somebody else hmm. back in this is 2013 or so. And they were talking mm-hmm. about the difficulties of attribution. And one difficulty is that it can be, particularly in a place like China, where the lines between corporate and government are, are especially blurred, it can be really right. hard to identify if a cyber attack is is perpetrated by a state actor or if it's perpetrated by just a rogue corporation or just like some group of hackers that are looking for money. And it's, you know, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's also, you know, the case in, in Russia, you know, people talk about what's going on in Russia, like whether or not Putin orchestrated some sort of attack on the electoral system of the United States, it's quite, mm-hmm. po- it's quite possible that his underlings who were just who are kind of like jockeying for for power within the Kremlin, they might have carried out it under their own autonomy some sort of cyber effort, you know. So whether or not it's orchestrated by the government, so it, it can be hard to say. Like even if you know an attack comes from a region, did it actually come from from a government or or a state actor? Is that part of the attribution process that you consider? Are you more just considering like how? D- you know, what computer did this attack come from? Well, the focus of our paper did include that component as well. Again, we were considering it from these three different perspectives. But that is a valid point that there is a challenge. It's much harder to be able to point directly at a government entity versus being able to point just to the the computer from which the uh, attack was launched. And this is one of the places where intelligence can come to play and be very useful. So in particular, intelligence agencies may have access to a human intelligence where they were able to talk to someone associated with the adversarial government and be able to get direct information knowing that the government was intent on engaging in this attack. Another possibility is that there's some signals intelligence where they were able to uh, eavesdrop on communication lines or intercept internet traffic that showed communication and perhaps a directive that was made by a a particular government to indicate that the government was supporting the attack. So those are the kinds of things that can help facilitate this understanding and support the investigation. But uh, again, one of the things to keep in mind is in some cases you may or may not have access to this kinds of intelligence. In other cases, the intelligence that you have access to may not necessarily be that robust. And so there will always be some level of almost a probabilistic nature to this. And often when the 
agency or investigative authority comes out with a decision, they may associate with it a, a degree of certainty. We even see this in the Russian attack on the U.S. presidential election in 2016, where not all intelligence agencies had the same level of confidence based on the information that they well, had at their disposal. They were not all at the same level of confidence. And this, and this it kind of is an example of where the intelligence that you have to support the evidence that you do have direct access to can impact your decision. I would love to hear you talk more about that because, you know, you're somebody who studied it in depth and maybe you could just disambiguate the most common places of public confusion around the topic of Russian hacking in the 2016 election. Right. So I think part of the challenge when we think about the Russian hacking scenario is that there were these strong political aspects that led to lots of dissension about the decision, even within the United States. I think this communication aspect of the particular attack or or this communication aspect of the particular uh, investigative decision is a really important aspect that we felt was, was key to address. Again, if you think about the technical, political, and intelligence nature of these investigations, one of the challenges is right now there is no consistent way to communicate the particular investigation decision. And this is both from the standpoint of the level of certainty that might be associated with the decision from the standpoint of you know, the way the report will be presented. Having a standardized report would be useful in and of itself in a way that could kind of break down the contents of the decision, recognizing that some people will need to know the technical details, but there are going to be other people that won't necessarily have that skill set and won't be able to understand it. And then in, in many cases, the way these are communicated currently is a lot of the material is declared classified. So what this means is that the public and that public, including very, you know, often very important decision makers won't necessarily be able to discuss in a public way what the content of the report consists of, you know, the material be redacted in the various reports. And so Now, when you lay on top of that, the various political motivations and incentives, at the end of the day, it led to an easy opportunity to dispute these various decisions. So even though the intelligence community largely agreed that the Russians firmly engaged an information operation campaign against the presidential election, because of the way this information was communicated, it still left enough room for dissension, arguments of, of dissension, and that's part of the, the problem. Mm. Well, what's hard for me is I look at, for example, what what we know happened, which is that mm-hmm. there was a broad marketing campaign of, around right. the spreading of fake information or dubious information or 
basically the digital equivalent of attack ads against Hillary right. against Hillary Clinton or pro right, pro, right, right. pro Trump ads, and you know you could consider that hacking. Like you kind of could in a certain light, except it's it's not really hacking; it's marketing. So you know it, yeah, it, it makes right. it, it it makes it hard for me to you know okay so if if the Russian government put eighteen million dollars into Facebook ads that were targeted at rural Americans that were on the fence, is that hacking? Mm-hmm. Do the intelligence brokers within the government consider that hacking? I don't know. And and if they consider that hacking, then that that would honestly make me a lot less concerned. You know, it's, I mean, it makes me concerned, but it, it would make me less concerned about, like, the efficacy of our voting systems, for example. I'm not sure if you are one of the people who is privy to, to more information than what I've seen. I mean, what, so, and, and the, the, you know, okay, and then if we talk about the technical disclosures, what we have seen, technically, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just remember seeing something that was, like, I think this was the Grizzly Step Report. You and I talked about right. this on the phone. The right. Grizzly Step Report, I think, is the most technical piece of information about the hacking that has been released, and it was kind of a a, a no like there was nothing mm-hmm. there, right? It was a nothing right, burger, right. and that right. that made me a little concerned about like, okay, well, what what is the truth here? What's getting politicized? What is factual? Right. I mean, so I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, to just go back to this information campaign and you know the 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 various ads on on Facebook or whatever. So at at a certain level, this is it's kind of new territory in just recognizing how there is this, to a large extent, personalized access to so many members of society, right? It's not just that, you know, a, a article shows up wrong in the newspaper, but, you know, when I log into Facebook versus you versus someone else, we may be seeing different stories that could influence our decisions when it comes to the election. And so, that's a, you know, a, a radical concept, and it will continue to be more and more personalized. So that's largely new territory, particularly with respect to thinking about elections. To get back to the report and some of this information being one of the points I made of being standardized. So again, even if we look at the kinds of research that does happen and the kinds of reports that are produced... There's a great deal of fragmentation that occurs among the various entities that will be producing these reports. And, and that includes both these private sector cybersecurity firms, as well as the various intelligence agencies. So, for example, one of the things I mentioned earlier, how you have these advanced persistent threats, APTs, and these APTs are often given names that represent a particular set of evidence associated with a a given attack. So in some cases, you have firms that use kind of an APT numbering scheme. In other cases, you have firms that use, um, in the case of, for example, CrowdStrike, they use kind of animal names associated with their APTs. And so the challenge here is we're already dealing with a complex topic, but each of these firms often are using different names to refer to the same set of evidence. And this just adds a degree of complexity, particularly when you're dealing with people that need to understand this, but don't come from a technical background. So those are some of the the kinds of issues that we believe there is room for improvement 
so that as we move forward, and, and as you said, and I totally agree with you, this is going to continue to be an issue. We're, we're at the beginning of this. I mean, cyber attacks have been happening for, for decades now. Let's be clear. This didn't just start in 2016. But nevertheless, I see this occurring more and more as we continue to digitize our, our lives. And so having a way to just thinking about how this is being communicated to the public, because you're right, the Gri- Grizzly Stat report, there was a lot of criticism about it. So thinking about the communication approach of these reports, that's an important thing to consider. And so that would be one of the outcomes that we believe would be valuable in the kind of uh, organization we proposed. Right, exactly. And you are talking about the report you wrote called Stateless Attribution Toward International Accountability in Cyberspace. This is a fascinating concept. I think it's an important concept for our time. It's it's This is like as big of a deal as nuclear nonproliferation because, you know, the, the you would think like the, the people who are in power across the world, they've got to know that, you know, we're moving towards a place where there could just be such chaos in the information streams. If, if, if we go right. off the rails, you know, you could see complete bedlam happening. I mean, you think about the other side of the coin of the Women's March, like how, like that was basically our Arab Spring, right? Like digital info, digital information flows brought people into mm-hmm. the streets on a scale that we've never seen. Thank God it was a peaceful protest. But if you think about a corrupted information flow that brings people out into the streets in mutiny, you know, especially on on the backs of false information, it could be complete chaos. So you got to think that the people in power, game theory wise, they're thinking. Okay, this we do want to lay out some rules for this game. We do want a way to do true attribution, international accountability. So why don't you describe the process of writing th- the report? Right. So, you know, just just to tack on to what you just said, you talked about how if this information is corrupted, this can cause these tremendous problems. And I think the one other thing I would add to that is that it's not only information that is being consumed by humans, but more and more, this information will be consumed by various devices that will then actuate various machines on behalf of us, right? And so that can lead to even bigger problems. So, you know, an example, I mean, you know, I don't mean to, you know, make this sound too dystopic, but even if it's just information that directs our autonomous Lyft and or Uber to drive to the wrong address consistently so that no one is able to get picked up for rides or be delivered to the right location. Those are the kind of things that may become possible as this information is is corrupted more and more. Now, to get to your, your question, so we were approached by Microsoft. They were interested. Um, they have recently been doing quite a bit of work thinking about these cyber attacks and in particular they proposed this notion of a digital geneva convention that was really uh, just a metaphor recognizing that this has to be taken very seriously in the way that we take very seriously some of the activities associated with kinetic warfare so they approached us and said can you help us think through what a global organization that's tasked with cyber attribution responsibilities how would that organization look? And so the idea would be there's a given cyber attack 
this organization could be called upon to engage in the investigation, and then they would render a decision about the attack. Mm. They basically gave us that high-level description, and then at that point, we just went off and and did our thinking about it. Mm. And so there were a couple of things that we recognized were important. First of all, we reviewed many of the attacks that have occurred over the past several years. We looked at the various players that were involved. As I mentioned before, there are these private cybersecurity firms that are often involved, and then, of course, there are these intelligence agencies that are involved. We looked at the fact that often these attacks shouldn't be studied in isolation because an attack is often part of an ongoing campaign, and you really need to look at the characteristics of a set of attack events that are related and are associated with a particular perpetrator. And, and this, this is typically how it's done, as I suggested, with the, the current cybersecurity research community. Mm. We also recognized that there is this political nature to these attacks, and the United States is, has been a perfect example of how politicizing can come into play with respect to these decisions. So one of the key ideas that we suggested, though, was that this organization should not have states as its members. So we shouldn't think of this as being a direct analogy to the United Nations, for example, where, you know, the U.S., Russia, Canada, China, you know, all other states are members of the, the various, of, of the body. Instead, our thinking was that it makes more sense to make this independent of particular nation states and make membership consist of cybersecurity experts that come from essentially two places. We need to have cybersecurity experts that do know the technical ins and outs of how cybersecurity attacks occurred. So these are people that have been involved in, in, in investigations. Maybe they have worked at a, a CrowdStrike or a Kaspersky or, or uh, in a previous life have worked at NSA and know the technical details of how to attribute an attack. And then secondly, we need a set of researchers that may not know the technical details, but know about international law. They know political motivations, and can think about some of these political insights that are associated with cybersecurity attack. And at a certain level, we borrowed this from the way the Talon Manual was put together. The Talon Manual had a group of experts that essentially assessed international law with respect to cybersecurity. Their goal was to think how can international law, as it currently exists, how should it be interpreted with respect to cybersecurity? And they pulled forth a distinguished set of experts led by Michael Schmidt, who is a law professor, and used that to write up, at this point, two manuals. The first manual and then the second manual just came out earlier this year, Talon Manual 2.0. So our thinking is that we want to have both of these kinds of experts associated with this organization, but these experts would not be official representatives of a particular nation. And we thought that that might serve as a way to avoid some of the politicization that would certainly 
come about once a decision is made. Now, to be clear, we recognize that while you may not be an official representation of a given nation, just based on your birthplace and where you live and where you associate, obviously there are going to be some connections. So there would have to be due diligence to ensure that there is broad representation. We don't want this to just be, say, U.S.-centric. We want to have a, a broad set of representatives. And that includes both representatives in the wealthier industrialized nations, as well as representatives that are not necessarily from those wealthy industrialized nations. And in fact, for example, there is a big attack in Bangladesh that led to the theft of a significant amount of money. I believe it was $80 million, although I don't have that number right in front of me. And in this case, you're talking about a country that does not have the sophistication of the U.S. or of Israel. They're certainly not able to do a decisive cybersecurity attribution investigation. But we still want to have them represented because it's likely the case that we'll continue to have attacks that impact those kinds of countries as well as the wealthier countries. And an organization like this should be able to represent that kind of perspective. When you completed this report, did you just submit it to Microsoft or did you submit it to a group of people? Well, I'm curious what the response was. As is typically the case with RAN reports, we publish this on our website. So all of our reports are made public. There are a few exceptional cases where a report might be classified if it's done on behalf of the Department of Defense, for example. But in this case, it was made public. It's available if you go to RAN.org and do a search on stateless attribution. You should be able to pull it up easily. Hmm. So we made this publicly available. And then I attended a conference in Estonia, CyberCon, and there was a small group of experts you know, associated with this topic. And we had discussion, you know, working with Microsoft to discuss the ideas that we presented in the report. And a lot of the feedback was very positive. A lot of people recognized the challenges that exist here, and they also recognized that this will continue to be a very, very important issue. Now, there are some experts that do believe that it will not be as effective if you don't have this state-based membership. And in fact, we anticipated that this may be one of the issues that is criticized. So for that reason, we do believe that there are opportunities for states to contribute information to this organization where the organization would not necessarily have direct access to for example, various types of intelligence. So for example, a nation could choose to declassify information and make it available to the organization. Another possibility is that a nation may not necessarily release or declassify information that's relevant, but they may share information to suggest that the organization may consider looking in uh, alternative direction. And so a lot of those details would need to be worked out, but we think that there are ways that nations could contribute without being direct members. When you think about how we thought that this organization might be run, first of all, there are a couple things to keep in mind. So first, there's this idea of what would lead to an investigation occurring. 
what would be basically the triggering condition for a given investigation? One of the ways we thought might be useful is to consider the Supreme Court model, where the Supreme Court decides every year which cases it will take on. So there is a submission of a tremendous number of cases every year, and then the Supreme Court essentially goes through a process of deciding which cases it will take on. The number of cases that are submitted to the Supreme Court, by the way, is quite large. It's on on the order of 8,000 cases that they receive every year. And obviously, they take a much smaller number than that. In that process of deciding which cases to take on, it's very important that the process should be transparent and as fair as possible. So to the degree that some key criteria can be laid out that might, for example, rule out certain cases immediately so that you would know that, for example, one criteria might be that the the incident has to impact a certain number of people or must involve a certain, you know, quantification of damage. And if you're below that threshold, we're not taking the case on. Hmm. You'd want to work out some of that criteria ahead of time. So it would be very, very clear that these cases we won't take on, on because they are, are, are not meeting our criteria. Hmm. Now, one idea that actually came up in one of the conversations I had during the various discussions. This was an idea that was mentioned by Jason Healy. And I actually thought it was an interesting idea. The the notion was that instead of having victims bring cases forward in a manner that's similar to the Supreme Court, and and then the organization would decide whether or not to take on the cases, an alternative approach would be to declare criteria for a sufficiently small set of cases that would always be taken on. And then the organization, instead of receiving requests from external victims, the organization would then seek out cases that meet that criteria. Mm. And so the idea would be the organization would, this would be a way where the organization presumably could be perceived to be both transparent and fair and they would state up front that any case that meets a certain set of criteria, we're going to take it on. So I thought that was actually an interesting inversion, interesting attack. Yeah, yeah. Not, a, you know, I shouldn't have said it that way. Approach. Interesting way to attack the problem. Yeah, but interesting approach. Right, exactly. So I think, you know, for example, if we look at the attack that occurred this past spring where there were hospitals that were attacked. Yep. Ransomware. Right, exactly. This this might be a reasonable way to, to, you know, like if hospitals are attacked because they represent an important aspect of critical infrastructure, we'll take on those cases. Yeah. So that, that might be one way of looking at it. Yeah. John, I, I know we're nearing the end of our time and I want to begin to wrap up. And there's a lot of stuff I would like to get your insights on. And, and instead of asking you individually, because we don't have time, I'm just going to kind of bundle a number of questions into one question. So- sure. Internationally, there is, you know, the representation of of how our conflicts exist between various counterparties, between the United States and Iran, between the United States and China, between the United States and Russia, between the United States and North Korea, 
it's presented a certain way in the news, in each of these individual cases. North Korea is this burgeoning nuclear actor, but there's not actually a great military solution. Maybe it's a war of ideas. China is this, you know, it's the there's a, a conflict with China that's on the horizon. It's inevitable, but we don't know how long it's going to take to get there. Russia is this constant meddlesome enemy. If you're not entirely opposed to to Russia, then you know there's something wrong with you, or you're far right. So there's there's kind of these like narratives, and they're they're extremely polarized narratives. And I I know there's there are shades of truth to each of those polarized narratives, but. What I'm hoping you'll provide with me is is maybe the more tempered interpretation of some of these internet of, of of the United States's relationship to some of these players, or or if not tempered, maybe your own like subjective or just what your interpretation is and and how far it deviates from the public understanding. I would just love to understand the true nature of these different conflicts because <laughs> it's so hard for me to disambiguate what is truth from what is you know, bloviation or ostentatious news cycle BS. I don't know. Help help me understand the in five minutes or less. <laughs> oh, okay. So here's here's what I would say. I, you know, the true nature. I, you know, I'm I'm not sure I can necessarily speak on precisely what the true nature is. Here here's here's my thinking. Right now, lots and lots of countries engage in cybersecurity. One of the points we mentioned in our, our report was that there are 30-plus countries that have offensive cybersecurity activities. And as one place I read put it, the cost of creating offensive cyber capabilities to a country is on par with deciding that you want to win a gold medal. The point being that this is not that expensive. It's not like saying we're going to engage in a, a nuclear weapon program, which even that to some degree is it's more prolific than it was decades ago. But cybersecurity is a whole lot cheaper. And I think we're going to continue to see this. In fact, just this past spring, a new APT was mentioned, APT 32, that was attributed to the Vietnamese. And, you know, Vietnam, with all due respect, is not the kind of country that you would expect, say, five years ago would be, you know, noted as having offensive cybersecurity operations. We're going to continue to see this proliferation. Right now, the United States is a clear leader. We have tremendous cybersecurity capabilities. We also have tremendous capabilities to engage in, you know, investigative, authoritative investigations. But just as with the rest of the world becoming flat, largely due to decreased cost in technology, we will likely see the world continue to become flat in this domain as well. And something needs to happen. And, and I think this is why Microsoft is interested in this. At the end of the day, when you think about Microsoft, they and other technology providers are essentially the, the landscape upon which this warfare is being fought. And so they're kind of caught in the middle at a certain level. And, and they just recognize that this, you know, this war will con continue. So we're kind of in this wild, wild west place we have a few people that have, you know, bigger guns than everyone else, but there is a 
a wagon of guns heading our way that's going to be available for a lot more players and we just risk this going out of control so it won't just be the names that you mentioned the russia the china's the north koreans but it'll be many many other countries that are are involved and that's not even to mention the non-state actors right so there are obviously lots of non-state actors crime syndicates that will be engaged in this as well so something needs to happen so i don't know if that was exactly the answer you were looking for but that's certainly how i feel all right well no um it was not i didn't expect any particular answer you ask an ambiguous question you get an ambiguous answer <laughs> but you know you, i you know i didn't read your entire report i read a lot of it and we didn't gotcha. really get through much of the discussion of I mean, you, you explained a lot about the results of the report, and, and this is really useful to me. I think this is a great conversation. I think the listeners are going to love it. I'm going to link, awesome. I'm going to link to stateless attribution toward international accountability in cyberspace in the show notes. And yeah, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks for making the time, and thanks for all your great work. This is a really a public service that's really important. Thank you so much. This has been great. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs>